Welcome back, everybody. Uh, as promised, this is our long-awaited, not long-awaited, we only announced this last week, two weeks ago, Severance episode. As you can tell, I'm really not used to doing the intro. I usually let Aaron do it so I can sit back and be lazy. But as I was the one who was like, we should do Severance, I have to lead this episode. That is my punishment. Aaron, how are you doing today? I'm, I'm doing fun. Punishment? What the heck? <laughs> Well, I, I say, how are you doing today? Because Aaron had to binge watch his way through Severance, and that is not a show that is easy to binge watch through. No, it's not. I uh, I did it over three nights, just because it's we're literally actually like when this comes out, it'll be the second day of school for me, and so I was like, oh, I have to find spare time to do this. I definitely didn't procrastinate anything academic to do it. <laughs> And so I watched like five episodes, four episodes the first night. So one, two, three, four, five and six, and then another night. And then last night I did seven through nine. So it's not the worst binge I've ever done, but definitely a lot of, I don't think, I, I, I wouldn't call it a depressing show. So I'm not going to say it's a lot of depression, but it's, it's a, it's a lot. I, I will say that. It, it is a lot. There is, I want to say this is the right word for it, but I'm not sure. There is a sort of malaise that overcasts the show. And when you come out of it, you're still in it. Where you're like, I just, I feel like oppressive fluorescent lights are everywhere. And I can hear the hum of machinery and I hate it. I, I taught positive psych over the summer. And there's an, there was an entire chapter on like, psych in the workplace, biophilic design or biophilic, I don't know, I've read the word, I've never heard it taught. There, no one's inviting me to a positive psych conference. <laughs> but biophilic, I think would be how you pronounce it. Love of nature, you know, bringing plants, you know, open spaces. The, the, the way they designed the office was literally like the opposite of, of, of every single way you're supposed to design <laughs> an office so that your workers don't go insane or have their physical health suffer. Uh, and it, it so that was my first thought. My second thought was how much it resembled grad school, because my <laughs> office in grad school was in the basement and just nothing but fluorescent lights, winding hallways. And I was like, gosh, no wonder like grad school is depressing. Like that, especially for you know people who live in places like that. This is the, when when a show is going. Ah, oh, yes, this is where the people you know the chattel are being kept to do their weird coding stuff, and they're all being oppressed. And that's the sheer message of this show is oppression. And I'm going. I think I went to grad school here. Yeah, not a good sign. <laughs> not at all. It, it reminds me of. You ever see those um, like bedroom layouts and when they explain like, okay, if you have your bed against one wall or against two walls, here's what it means. And it's like, if you have your bed in the center of the room, you're a psychopath. Like if, you, if, if, or if you have the foot of your bed touching a wall, there's something clearly wrong with you because like nobody does that. I've seen them. I think if you put your bed in the center of the room, you're just Scandinavian or something. Could be that. Like, I yeah, mean, that's just, I mean, potato, maybe potato. All um, like, all the artsy apartments, I've, well, not all, for like the five seconds I paid attention to interior design trends at some point in my life, I thought I remembered seeing a bunch of like beds in the center of. I, okay, maybe I beds know. in the center of the room wasn't the weird thing. But like, there are certain things that definitely feel wrong, like sleeping with. You're the f you're the foot of the bed touching a wall. I don't know. I slept in a bed like that all through high school. <laughs> the foot of my bed was like against the. I mean, I slept in a bunk bed to be fair. But like both my brother and I, if I remember the orientation, 
how I, I know how I would sleep. I don't remember how he would sleep. I would sleep with my head away from the wall, my feet towards the wall. Really? That maybe, maybe this explains a lot about this, me this in high might, school. I don't know. This might explain a lot. But, like, <laughs> I, love, I love things about design that where you're like, this is wrong. I can't explain exactly why it's wrong, but it feels very wrong. I think the show had a lot of stuff like that. And again, this isn't psychological necessarily, though I think some of it was maybe visually It's just used. off-putting. Like, it's just designed to be yeah. deeply off-putting. Yeah, I mean, e- even how they costumed the characters, like um, Adam Scott's character, Mark, like, he's his suit doesn't fit him well. It's an expensive suit. It's not... It's, it's like, they didn't... The costumers did not go to Walmart... To, to, to costume him, but they and they didn't make it look horrible just because, you know, I don't think... It, it, it's still Hollywood rules, right? Mm-hmm. What counts as an ugly person is still, you know, a 10 to the rest of us. <laughs> but it, it certainly wasn't well tailored to him. If you took a picture of how he dresses in that suit and then uh, compared to, say, his suits in Parks and Rec, and you do, like, the mental adjustment for how suits have been cut in the seven or eight years since that show... Uh, almost a decade since he first appeared in it. Like, it was definitely not supposed to be flattering, and I think there's a, a reason for that. Like, it kind of communicates that he's not quite himself and he's not comfortable. Right. I suppose we should give a light spoiler warning. For the, we should. For, Actually, for before beginning. we even give a light spoiler warning, um, I guess first things first, um, for those of you who are listening who have not seen Severance because it's on Apple TV Plus and nobody has that, Severance is a show about... Um, Mark, who is an office worker who works on the severed floor of uh, a ambiguously described company called Lumen Industries. Uh, severed floor means that he and the other workers who work there uh, have literal work-life separation. Their, their brains have been severed in such a way or altered in such a way that they have a separate consciousness that comes awake when they are at work and that immediately goes away when they are at home so for their home selves it appears like they are never at work like they just walk into the office and then the next thing they know they're walking out and then for their work selves they are permanently at work they never leave yeah like they wake up and go to sleep what depending on when they go they experience it similar to sleep right because they call it the innie when they're at work and the outie in the real world and it literally you you switch from innie to outie when you step off the elevator onto the work floor Mm -hmm. And so it's it's this beautiful, really twisted, extended metaphor for the work-life separation and the sort of different selves that we can be depending on where we are. And of course, this being, you know, a TV show, um, there is something mysterious and off about the work that they do. And the show eventually becomes about trying to resolve your innie and your outy self um, and trying to make contact with your Audi self to explain, hey, I'm not happy here. I I work 24, my entire conscious living, waking hours is nothing but work in this very weird space that Aaron and I have been talking about. Um, and I, I can't stand it. I do kind of wish they hadn't used the, 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 titles for different types of belly buttons as the, <laughs> the titles for themselves. That's what, it, it's another one of those deliberately disturbing um, <laughs> phraseologies that I think, just gives this entire show this this deeply off-putting bent to it. Um, it really is. That's a because like, it. I won't say it defied suspension of disbelief because I would honestly say like, 
I think it's fair to call this sci-fi. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. Certainly more light sci-fi. Well, no, it's more realistic sci-fi. And it's more like actual classical sci-fi is supposed to be, you know, in, in the pre-Star Wars world. I actually wouldn't classify Star Wars as sci-fi, which is like it's a conversation not, for another not, day. But fantasy. yeah, Star Wars is fantasy. Well, no, it's got wizards. Star Wars is absolutely fantasy. But like after Star Wars and arguably Star Trek, like sci-fi became much more fantastical. Right. So this kind of calls back to Philip K. Dick. Mm-hmm. The, the, the more where it's like, it's ju- there's, there's been a technological leap that we can't accomplish. And I can talk another talk a little bit after we get, you know, more into it about the technology and the, the psychological um, um, stuff that they're doing. But other than that, like it's very similar to our world. And so it, it didn't define my suspension of disbelief in that way. I wasn't there going, oh, you know, like this, this could never happen because I was willing to put that aside. But the Eddie and the Audi was one of the first things where I was like, what the hell? Just, just, just what the hell? Like I'm not saying somebody wouldn't do this, but why, why was this choice made? And I felt myself saying that a lot throughout this show, not like getting angry at it, not like being drawn out or, or maybe, maybe out and in is a bad, well, especially considering what we're talking about, pushed away. Mm-hmm. I didn't feel like I was being pushed away from the show, which I definitely do feel with some shows that get very pretentious. And I'm just like, okay, I'm, I, I'm, I'm done. Like, I'm not a pretentious person. Partic- well, I am, but not about this. So I'm not doing this. Uh, but it was really off-putting to constantly hear belly button terms. <laughs> yeah. Going back to what you were saying earlier, though, about the type of science fiction this is, I think what I really like about Severance and what it, what's causing a lot of people to give it a lot of attention is the fact that it is well and truly speculative fiction, right? Which is what a lot of older sci-fi exists as speculative fiction essentially says what would happen if x technology existed if we could do this thing or if we discovered that thing and how does everything else in that world spin out from that one discovery when you write science fiction in that way you're building it of a very tight structure you're not building like in Star Wars, vast worlds where there's the force and also we, you know, we have flying cars and also this other stuff and there's a thousand planets. That's very broad world building. Speculative fiction tends to keep it really tight. It's very, like Isaac Asimov is a great example of speculative fiction where he goes, well, what if we had robots? (laughs) Not that robots didn't already exist. Actually, did they? Asimov is old enough where he actually invented the word robotics. Because we didn't actually have a word to describe the field. I, I'm trying um, to remember when he when he when his first book was published. I do want to say we had the beginnings of what he ended up calling robotics. Yeah, we must have because the word robot uh, did exist. Um, but Asimov really just took this one concept and spun story after story after story off of just that one concept. What if we had robots? What if they could do things we couldn't? You know, and, and how would that affect human psychology? How would that affect families? How would that affect society? Severance, I think, continues that Asimov Foundation, right? The Philip K. Dick Foundation. Yeah. Of here, let's take one principle. What if we could split your consciousness so that one of you could be at work and the other one of you could go home at the end of the day and not have to know what happened at work? And what would be the natural ramifications of that? I think we can talk for probably a, a good bit without getting into spoiler territory. So we'll we'll pop up the major spoiler warning for later. Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, the, the very fact that we've talked about severance and what the press what the the procedure is like, 
I, do we, I, I'll still say a I light think that's in spoiler the trailers. warning. It's in the yeah. trailers. I'm going to talk a little bit about how it's revealed to work, but that's not a major plot point because they refer yeah, to it. Yeah, it's not. But yeah, so I, I think Severance is a really great example, especially on the, on the writing side of, of taking a single concept and spinning it out into not just plot ramifications, right, and character ramifications. You have characters who are very happy, right, or, or have made their peace with being an innie and only ever working as their existence. And we have people who are very unhappy. You have a corporation that now has the ability to make sure that nobody knows company secrets because the people who know the company secrets are locked away inside those employees' brains and can never essentially leave that floor. Um, so you have all of those aspects of it, plot and character, but then you also have all these design elements that I think are brilliant. Like we were, I mean, clearly we just spent the last 10 minutes gushing about the ways that the setting makes us uncomfortable, but all of those really play towards that central concept of what is what is work and and how do we split ourselves into different people for a work environment and should work even look like this so they've done everything in their power to make work the most oppressive imposing freakish thing in a way that's darkly funny at times like the innie and Audi thing is an example of like that that terminology for me is a is a great example of that darkly funny juxtaposition. Well, I know that they one of the th one of the things they took inspiration from when they were writing it. Uh, and it's, it's kind of a shame that the the author of this went so insane. Uh, but Dilbert, <laughs> this, they were genuinely and openly inspired yeah. by like the older days of Dilbert, back when Scott Adams was more interested in making fun of corporate America and its stupidity rather than giving some genuinely. Uh, spicy takes I'll, mm -hmm. I'll i'll put it politely and call them spicy takes because i'm gonna try to put off swearing on this podcast as long as i possibly <laughs> can i think it's at its best when it's it's doing that type of humor and that that darkly funny approach because there's also parts of it and again I, th I don't think this is really much of a spoiler if it is a spoiler it's a kind of a light spoiler there's a sort of worship of the people who founded the company, especially the first one who right. founded the company, it reminds me a lot of Bioshock Infinite, like where they worship mm -hmm. the new or, or the Purge universe, where because the, they worship the new founding fathers there. I mean, not to be weird about it, but it reminds me of Apple and Disney and and pretty much any other major company that has a huge central figurehead. They're just taking it to an extreme, yeah, so that you can really see what's happening there. Yeah. I I found those parts though to be the less engaging ones, especially just because of how they tried. The, the, so the, the the Kier that they all worship is his last name was Kier, but they refer to him as just Kier, even though the family's still in charge. Again, not a spoiler. When they talk about him, I felt that the the religious element to me was actually the closest I came to being repelled from it, just because I didn't. I found it too weird because that's the thing. It's speculative fiction, right? It's like I'm like, okay, I can for most of this show, I can totally understand. I can totally see people in our world, which is what it's supposed to be. If this procedure existed, I can see this happening. Like people having their own opinions about the procedure and it being very controversial, it entering politics, it entering social discussions, something that you know families argue about over the dinner dinner table. I can see all that, but even at my most curmudgeonly. Outside of actual religious cults, like, uh, okay, I'll name one because it's 
he's he is one like Doug Wilson literally trying to take over Moscow, Idaho, and he's not even subtle about it. It's like how many pedophiles do you have to ordain and then into your ministry and then get caught before people realize you're a bad person? But nobody does because like, well, you know, we trust Doug, we trust the process. That's not slanderous. That's literally just a matter of public legal record, right? That makes sense to me, even though I find it really gross, because he is a religious figure leader in a religious cult. But admittedly, like, I've never met anyone super high who works for Disney uh, or, or Microsoft. I'm going to rephrase that. I've never met somebody who works high up. For all I know, they were getting high all the time. Uh, but I've never worked <laughs> anyone who works high up at Disney Microsoft or Apple, but I've known people who've worked for all three, Comcast, a lot of big companies, and none of them have a religious view. The closest that I've seen is some, like, you know, loving views of Walt Disney that I was like, ah, grumpy, grumpy. <laughs> but I would, I would venture to say, that, I mean, those people obviously aren't severed, and I think part of what's interesting about that adoration of the company's founder in the show is it comes almost exclusively from the innies. Right, whose entire life and consciousness exists within that. Like they don't have a life outside of that. If you think about just going back to like the Doug Wilson thing that you brought up, like part of the way, reason Doug Wilson has a lot of power where he is is that people there are intensely religious. They don't really have much of a life outside of their community, outside of their church. And so therefore when someone is a leader of something that takes over 80% of your life, then yeah, that can reach, I think, cult-like status if you are isolated enough from the rest of the world, right? That's often what defines a cult. That's one of the defining factors of a cult, correct me if I'm wrong, is, is the isolation. And here you have a an instance where you have complete isolation. It does strain belief for us as obviously non-severed people. But I think if you think about it in terms of the show when these people are like, they're literally... Like, Heli, who is one of the main characters, she begins her life as an innie at the start of our show. And so by the end of the show, she is like, what, maybe a week or two old in terms of cumulative hours? Yeah, I, I guess the, the character I'm thinking of who I felt strained my belief the most is a non-severed character. Oh, oh, yeah. It's um, yeah. Patricia Arquette's character. Yes, she is weird, and I don't think we know what her deal is yet. That's fair, and I, I, I think that we'll, maybe we'll find out more in the second season. Again, nothing turned me off the show, per se. Mm -hmm. I, I do anxiously await a season two, but I still thought it was a bit of an odd choice. Much preferred the, 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 the dark humor uh, element yeah. of commentary. Maybe that, was, that religious stuff was meant to be dark humor, and we just didn't. <laughs> it's too close to reality for us. But to get your response on something else, I think I think one of the one of the most obvious things that Severance as a show is trying to critique is this concept of the way that we see work. I'm curious if you have any thoughts on that, especially as recently I've been noticing there have been a couple articles about quiet quitting, which is this new concept on TikTok. Um, is this new concept on TikTok that I'm making lots of faces, audience. You, you oh, had to watch a faces. TikTok. That was your real punishment. <laughs> you probably watch more TikTok than I do, so shut up. <laughs> um, um, but quiet quitting is this concept that's causing a lot of controversy um, in the work world because what essentially it means is you, a lot of Gen Z folks are now going to work and just doing the bare minimum. Right? Like they turn their phones off the second they're done with work. 
they they do just what's required the, of them and nothing more they de- never go the extra mile they're just there to get paid and then go home at the end of the day and that is for some reason being called quiet quitting it doesn't make much sense to me but term. companies are furious about it they're furious at this idea that people would come to work and do the bare minimum which uh, comment on that i guess um because i'm flabbergasted I'll preface this by saying, yes, I am a capitalist. Yes, I do believe capitalism is a generally beneficial thing. I think the way people, when people complain about capitalism online, half the time I'm like, you're you're complaining about something totally different than cap. Just because you don't like something does not make it capitalism. The same way I don't think that, you know, to, 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 to pick on my ideological colleagues, I guess, uh, the way people use socialism is often equally... Uh, fallacious mm-hmm. it's like oh it's that's socialism and i'm like okay depend if, if some political philosophers like frederick bastiat would agree that it was socialism you haven't read bastiat you're not using his definition you're using it as a synonym for you know i don't like this that being said even though i i, I like capitalism i don't think it's an inherently good thing i don't think it's an inherently bad thing i think it is an inherently neutral phenomenon um there are things i like about it i think that the work culture of america specifically, it, it is just wild to me that you would call that quiet quitting. I'm like, well, what what do you expect them to do? Like, did you sign a contract that had their list of duties? Okay, are they fulfilling the list of duties? Also, okay. Like, the, the idea of a work-life balance is, is incredibly important. I mean, we just finished uh, at the University of St. Thomas. We do something called uh, Freshman Symposium where it's, it's a class on how to be a college student, basically. Attending college is a skill. There are a lot of norms that they, they have to pick up on, so we try to help them do that. And one of the things we did on our very first day, which was um, Thursday, was, yeah, we do go through like our week, you know, first day of school tips. Well, you know, so it's like things like, okay, learn where your classes are. That's a good thing to do. Uh, learn who your professors are. That's also a good thing to do. F- f- you know, find the syllabi, learn how the Blackboard system works, all that good stuff. But then we also talked about, you know, you need to, to, to schedule your self-care. And I, by self-care, I don't mean a $500 shopping binge on Amazon. I don't mean drinking an entire bottle of wine. I don't mean hedonism masquerading as self-care. But more of a... Uh, to use a pretentious term, but positive psychology uses it too, so I can. A eudaimonia approach to well-being and saying, I'm going to spend time, if you're religious, maybe in prayer, if you're non-religious, in meditation or just quiet time. I'm going to go for a walk or a run or go to the gym, what have you. I'm going to have a time where I say, school is done. I am not doing school. A college student is part of who I am. It's not the entirety of who I am. Uh, You know, I'm I'm a college professor, and there is a lot more blur in my work-life balance because I also get to do things like say, hey, Friday's my day to just be a dad so my wife can work so I do not come into the office and I do not work on Fridays. And I'm also a workaholic, so my own work-life balance is terrible and this makes everything I'm saying a hi- hypocritic as hell. <laughs> but there are still times where I'm like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not doing that right now. Uh, and, and no one, and that's why I love why I work, is no one... A- expects me to. In fact, I think uh, my former head of department would actively get mad at people if she felt she wasn't, if they, she felt they weren't taking care of themselves. I do that to my, my manager all the time. Like my manager, my agents, if they're answering emails on a weekend, I'm like, why? <laughs> Stop. <laughs> Go relax. <laughs> my, uh, my new head of department, uh, I, don't know, I don't think she could actually mad. She'd just be quietly disappointed if we didn't take care of ourselves. But the same thing. 
corporate America, and then I think a lot of the culture as well, the narrative, especially for our generation, um, was that you know millennials are lazy, and I think Gen Z saw that and was like, okay, screw it, we're not going to play this game. You know, we're lazy because we don't feel like doing more than we're supposed to do. Like, I, I just don't understand I, that. that. That is so dumb. I wonder if it has to do with the idea that, because you brought up millennials, like one of the big traits of, of being a millennial was this whole, I want my work to be my passion. Yeah. Right? I want to work in a career that I'm passionate about. And I wonder, and this is part of where that religiosity that happens in severance comes in, if, if all of that is designed to create a sense of like, oh, you, you have a passion for this job you're willing to go above and beyond for this job because you love this company, you love what you do. And companies are maybe stuck on that mindset of like, you should love this. We would like you to love this because obviously every company would love it if their employees were passionate about their work, right? That would be great, but you can't force passion. We're a family here. Yeah, ex exactly, yeah. right? We don't need, you don't need all of this paperwork and and you know, boundaries were family. <laughs> I literally had this conversation with my grandmother, not that she's a company, but like I was trying to establish some boundaries about who cooks and who cleans because she tries to do all of it. And I was like, well, how about this? If you cook, I clean. And then if I cook, you clean. And she was like, no, we don't need that. We're family. And I was like, you sound like so many Did companies she have right siblings? now. siblings? Eight. Actually, maybe more than eight. She had a lot of siblings. I don't understand how you make it through life with siblings without understanding boundaries. Like for me, I've carried that. I carried it through into my marriage. Some stuff I learned from my siblings, right? Like a clear delineation of who does what. Now, to be fair, my siblings and I are all very smart and very Machiavellian. So our, we were also constantly trying to get out of work at each other's expense. So there had to be a. <laughs> we were all quietly quitting, or what? what, what what's it called? What's, what's the term? Yeah, quiet, quiet quitting. quitting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, all four Pomerantz children spent the entirety of their youth quiet quitting um, chores, <laughs> uh, and honestly, probably not even quiet quitting as much as just slacking, much to actively sabotaging. Sab yeah, blazing around, uh, dilettanting. Yeah, my poor mother. But yeah, we had boundaries. Like I will do this, and I'm not a lick more. You know, we, we brought that, I brought that forward into my marriage. My wife's very big on boundaries, and she owns a company, and that's something like she does with her her you know there's expectations you know this is what i expect you to do and no more like she's very big on that like i expect this from my clients my coworkers, my my employees and no more because like you know there's what's called expectations versus agreements which isn't psychology it's just business um the agreement is we will do this x y and z but sometimes you have expectations beyond that and that's that's a you problem you can expect something. Right, and you need to communicate those expectations so that they can be incorporated into the sense of boundaries, which is really funny coming back to this show because in a weird way, you see a complete lack of boundaries when it comes to the life of the innies. But if you look at the life of each of these characters as a whole, their innie and their outie life, this is like an ex this is the perfect example of boundaries. This is the ultimate boundary setting. In that they've almost literally placed a boundary between their work and their home life. They literally, they can't, they don't remember anything about their work when they're at home. And when they're at work, they can't remember anything about when they were at home. So in a weird way, this is like ultimate boundary setting. And you would think that would be healthy in some weird way. <laughs> and they certainly try to sell it like the, the, the CEO of this company and, and the people running it definitely try to sell it that way as like a healthier way to live. 
that's what's fun about the really good speculative fiction, right? Is that they will take a concept that like in theory is a very healthy and intelligent thing to do and then show you exactly why it's really not. Like a, a while back I wrote, this was actually the first TV pilot I ever wrote. I wrote, um, uh, oh, I don't know, maybe we should cut this. But I wrote a TV pilot essentially about not essentially about what it's like being homeschooled, but because I was homeschooled growing up and my kid, my most of my friends went to school, I was really curious about what happened if, like, they spent about 50% of their waking hours in school, not at home, whereas I spend 100% of my time at home. I was like, what happens if they spend 100% of their time in school? Like, what if you just really push that? And then I found out that Plato in, in Plato's Republic had actually written about this and how he thought it'd be a wonderful idea to take all children away from their parents and have them raised in schools with no concept of who their parents were because then there would be no sense of inequality, right? You couldn't have great parents or crappy parents. You couldn't have parents with lots of money with for tutors and other parents who barely had time for you. Like you would have complete equality of child rearing. And it's a terrible idea, but like in theory, you're like, oh, but parts of that make sense. And so I ended up writing a TV show about it in which we lived in a world where everybody the government took your children away from you literally almost actually before they were born they would take the fetus away from you and then raise it in a pod and so you would never have to know who it was so adults could free associate with free that's not the right way to say that free associate adults could freely associate with one another however they liked and children were raised by the state um completely uh completely what do you call it independent of any sort of outside factors right it was true equality. And of course, the system is completely messed up and I get to get in, in the show, I get to get into why. But I feel like in a way, Severance is is a very similar sort of speculative fiction where they're like, here's that idea that was sort of like, here's a fun theory. Like this would technically solve this. This would solve problem A of work-life balance and then it would create problems B through Z. To quote uh, a theater professor we both had, James Brandon, Plato was a fascist. Uh, I, I, I maintain that. Like, I, I enjoy some elements of philosophy, but people just, like, trip over themselves, sla slobbering all over Plato. And I'm like, he was a pederast and a fascist. Oh, he yeah. had some good ideas. And this was not one of them. But it's really fun to write about. But what makes what makes these ideas really great in, ter in terms of their literary possibility and why we like to see them as stories is because it's not just that they're terrible for their own sake. It's that they are supposedly, technically, in in intent, if not in effect, solving a need. We can see why this would happen, right? Most Black Mirror episodes, which I love, most Black Mirror episodes function on that principle, too. Here's a, here's a way we would use technology to solve this problem. Yeah. Here's how that would go wrong. Well, and that's... Very and quickly. that's something that's what actually I think the thing I liked the most about the show because again there's nothing I don't think this could ever happen like I, I was looking to see what other psychologists had, had had written about this show and the big question tends to be oh could this actually happen well if you're talking in terms of neuroscience no um, here, here's where psychology is going to take a little bit of a kind of kind of rain on the parade of uh, of writing a multiple personality disorder doesn't exist. At least it's never been, it's really never been confirmed to any uh, verifiable degree beyond a bunch of people mm -hmm. on Tumblr who have self-diagnosed. And I'm like, 
Cool. Uh, thank you for that. It gives me something to make fun of when I teach general psychology, but I'm not about to, it's, it's, it, there's no evidence of like truly isolated personalities, nothing quantitative uh, at the very least. There are things that are kind of similar. There's, called, what, there's what's called transcranial magnetic stimulation. We can shut off bits of the brain. Uh, it's it actually the, the entire reason this technology was invented was to kind of simulate um, actual damage to the brain. And it has allowed us to discover a lot more about where certain things are in the brain. We, we certainly do not believe, or most people don't believe, I would say, certainly the psychologists I regularly associate with believe in a mind brain dichotomy. I don't think any really believe that the brain is entirely the mind. Um, at least, again, a lot of the ones I talk to, there is something there that's, you know, the person, the self, the you, who you are, that is more than the sum of its parts, but it is linked to the brain. Uh, but there's no evidence that I've ever seen. Watch, it'll get published tomorrow in the Journal of Social Neuroscience or something that TCM has created the severance effect or whatever, uh, or TMS rather, transcranial magnetic simulation has, has done this. Uh, but as far as I can, I can tell, there's nothing really feasible about this. But it is interesting because if this existed, yeah, I think people would try to use it the way it's shown. I think it would be sold the way it is in the show. You know, some people are shown taking the severance procedure because they think they'll be more efficient. Some do it because they don't want to, you know, like they don't want to live in grief or they don't want to live with bad memories of who they are outside. Some people do it for purely political reasons. All of these are bad reasons, but I think people absolutely would do that. And to some extent, would you say that, like, we do try to do that? Uh, if, if I'm upset about something, you know, say I'm, I'm grieving over the loss of somebody, sometimes some people, their response to that is, I'm going to go to a friend's house and I'm going to go to a, a party or somewhere where I can temporarily forget that I'm sad about something. Right, I will go off somewhere and be a slightly different person. Uh, that's absolutely a thing, and it we, we talk a lot about self complexity, and which is kind of mm -hmm. like to put it in layman's terms, it's more about like multiple selves, basically. Like I have my work right. self, I have my personal self, and you can have a highly integrated self, and you can have a a, a more complex self. Um, if you have these different selves, in some ways that is healthier. So if I have a work self and a home self, like, like let's bring it back to quiet quitting, right? Like if I'm highly integrated, I have what's called low self complexity, and I, uh, you know, my boss yells at me, you know, you're quiet quitting, you're not doing enough, we need you to go above and beyond, you know, that's the sort of person we like here at Lumen. I'm probably gonna feel like crap for the rest of the day because I'm like, well, who I am at work is who I am at home, et cetera. Like, it's gonna affect things. If I am more complex, if I have higher self-complexity, my boss can yell at me. It's like, cool, but that doesn't really apply to myself that I am around my friends. I have my work self, and they are kind of separate. But the idea, and I think this is explained in the show, or explored in the show, and I think it's going to be, if I had to bet what I think is going to be one of the main themes of the second season, this would be kind of it. There's the idea that they are still the same core person. Even though the innie and the outie don't really know about each other, and they were in the show they talk about their innies and outies as if they're entirely separate people, they're not. Like, they are the same person, same beliefs, same values, same behavioral tendencies. 
I think that's kind of the missing element in that, you know, yes, high self-complexity is good, it's healthy, it buffers you against stress. Uh, it, the, the, the strongest negative thing I can say about it is that, yeah, sometimes, you know, you don't have as high highs, basically. You know, some, a person who is, lo, who is low in self-complexity, they win that award at work and they're like, I am the best person ever and they're happier in their private life because they won that award at work. The low self-complexity, the high self-complexity person rather might say, okay, cool, I won the award, but I don't really care about this job, so screw it. Like, this doesn't make me feel great. Hmm. But in every other way, high self-complexity is, 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 is more uh, beneficial, and especially whenever, basically any way it applies to mental health. But right. the difference between that and, say, severance is that it is still the same you. This, I mean, this is reinforced self-complexity, right? It's, it's self-complexity reinforced by technology to a point. It's not self-complexity as much as it is, like... It's, it's the thing it reminds me the most of, but there's still that core you in both. We all have... Right. I mean, we have, like, our customer service self. Um, we have mm -hmm. our... You know, we have our faces, our masks we put on. You know, that's one of the things I, I, I bring up literally my first lecture of any social psychology class I teach is I'm like, yeah, like hopefully who you are around your friends is not who you're going to be around me because that's not going to go well for either of us. Uh, hopefully who you are around me isn't who you are around your parents because what a boring relationship that would be with your parents or siblings. You know, like we have these different presentations of the self. We might even call them different selves. But rather than being entirely different, I, I would think of them more as facets of the self. We would we call that the the the, uh, the working self concept. Um, mm -hmm. It's it's a schema, you know, a set of cognitions, this and, and viewpoints and vision and, and planning. This is who I have to be right now. If I just launch into something like, yeah, I study conspiracy theories and honor culture. Uh, so let's, you know, just start crapping all over QAnon and let's talk about, you know, the fact that people who believe that hitting back is justified are also just statistically more likely to murder their wives. You know, that's going to bring the mood down really quick. <laughs> Same way it's like, you know, like, oh, what did you do at work this week? I'll say like, oh, I'm writing something. The real answer is I wrote about spousal homicide. Like I'm writing an, I'm writing an encyclopedia article for the Encyclopedia of Domestic Abuse and I'm writing something on honor and spousal violence. Special homicide specifically. Uh, I know not to do that because the working self-concept of who I am at work. Yeah, I can walk to my coworker Vicky's office and go, I feel like crap. I don't want to. I don't want to work for the next ten minutes because I just wrote about you know the fact that in the, what's called the honor belt of the of America, um, women are raped and murdered at like two to three times the national average. It's horrifying. We need like I, I just don't Jeez. want to think about that. Not right. going to bring that up. You know, when I go to a, a networking event, uh, I'm not going to go like, you know, hey, you know what would really liven this up? Murder. <laughs> I know what's relevant, but the reason I right. know what's relevant is it's me. And in severance, they take out that me. There is no me. You're sort of self-censoring, right? You're like, yeah. it's, it's not that you are... Because I, I know I've had conversations in the past where people think, oh, if you're different, if you're a different person around different people, aren't you lying? And it's like, well, no, it's not a lie so much as it is. I'm I'm sort of partitioning a little bit. Yes. Like I know to present these aspects of myself a little bit farther forward in some circumstances and then those aspects of myself forward in other circumstances. I know there's even I don't know how um, reputable this study was and it was done quite a long time ago, but there was a study where they had people take 
personality tests. Oh, they had bilingual people take personality tests, one in each language that they could speak in, and their personality tests actually came out different. They actually came out as, as two rather different personalities, depending on what language they took the test in, because language is tied to, I'm assuming, your self-concept or how you present yourself Whoa. Um, in some I'm way. Not, I mean, I'm not, I should really, same coworker, Vicky, studies uh, psychology of language, so I should probably go bother her about this. <sighs> yeah, I'd be, I'd be curious, because I only read about it once, and it was quite a long time ago, but I thought it was a really, I mean, it, it's very true in terms of at least how I experience being bilingual. I'm a very different person when I'm speaking in Mandarin than when I am speaking in English. There are just different social mores. There are different there are different aspects of myself that come to the front. And I know like, okay, I know you just said that um, multiple personality disorder is not really a provable thing, but one of the, this is in a different film called Split, which was very sensationalized and extremely fun um, about a person with DID but one of the metaphors they would use to talk about it, and from what I recall, this is actually taken from psychology. Uh, one of the metaphors they would use is is the idea of a certain personality coming into the light. So the idea that like all the personalities are there. They all exist in your mind, but sometimes one of them comes forward into into the light. That's just what they used in the movie. But I, I just it, there was a resonance in terms of like how I was talking about bilingualism or just or, or the way that we talk about being different selves is that sometimes we just allow certain aspects yeah, of ourselves to come it's forward. a different working self-concept um the other idea mm -hmm. would be and this is actually something i thought about a lot more in the later episodes once the the the, the phenomenon of severance was less of a of an issue and more the consequences were being discussed um is what's called uh self-perception theory which is where we learn about who we are by kind of observing ourselves. The same way other people learn about who we are, we learn about who we are. So there's a great example of this. My father. Uh, my father <laughs> would really like to pretend he is not a cat person and he doesn't like cats. Uh, he referred to the cat as the damn cat when they got one. My mother's very passionate about cat rescue and um, you know, uh, neutering feral cats so they don't decimate local bird populations. They adopted this one her name was Tuppence. She was she was the family cat. My sister just took her off to grad school, and my dad's like missing the cat. Like he's literally like a Aww. meme. Like you know, dad says we don't want the cat. Then dad and the cat, and he he's <laughs> learned he is a cat person by doing that. So we can learn about ourselves by being put in new situations and and, and seeing how we respond. Now you said earlier that um, high com what did you call it? high complex high self complexity. Yeah is generally a good thing seeing as the show is sort of exploring an extreme end of of that right a sort of technologically enabled extreme end of that is there anything in psychology that that talks about an extremely high self-complexity not being good uh like is there a point at which like that's not healthy to be a completely different person well the thing is again you're, you're not being in a completely different person there's still a true core you if you're putting on a face like, and it's totally inauthentic to who you are, that's, that's right. more, uh, we're talking more antisocial personality disorder or, or, or the, the realm of clinical psych, which is not something I can, uh, not something I feel comfortable speaking to until, unless I'm teaching gen psych. But as far as, like, just high self-complexity, there's still that core you, so it's not like it's being inauthentic. So it's when, it's when the high self-complexity devolves into inauthenticity, when it becomes so extreme where there's 
it's it's really not the same thing. I would say is that like you're, you're a highly self complex person is still by definition being authentic to themselves. Uh, somebody who is putting mm. on a face, they're not complex. They're lying. What if they're inconsistent? Like, what if it's a case where someone, say, you know, in when they're at church, you know, they look down on drinking. They don't drink ever. And then when they're at a bar, they drink a ton. Uh, that's not. That's more of um. That's not really com- about self complexity. I would say that's just that's hypocrisy. Just, that's just garden variety hypocrisy. And 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 you know, people talk about cognitive dissonance. Well, cognitive dissonance is the actual uh, unpleasant feeling you're supposed to feel when you are being inconsistent with your values. So I just say that's somebody who uh, has somehow managed to shut off their cognitive dissonance. And to be fair, severance would probably mm-hmm. help with that. <laughs> and and I, I do wonder that sometimes, you know, uh, again, to kind of, you know, you look at, I'm, I'm going to pick on Doug Wilson again because I really cannot stand him or any of his fans. And if you're a fan of him and listening to this, pick a better idol beyond him. He talks about the importance of the family. He talks about the quote unquote pornification of culture. He talks about, you know, all the sexual deviance out there and this totally fundamentalist wacko perspective. And yet... He, they just keep being pedophiles found that he ordains to the ministry in his church or in his denomination. It just keeps happening, and he doesn't have that cognitive dissonance. And at some point, you have to ask, you know, are, is this genuine? Are you genuinely this dumb, or are you lying? And I think that for a lot, of, you know, it would be much more comforting in some. It's certainly not easier, I think, in some ways. It would be great for me to say, yeah, he is sitting there on a throne like the Emperor in Star Wars. It's all coming together now, all the images we've talked about, uh, and going, eh, 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 eh. I hate people and children. I want to take over Moscow, Idaho. I'm evil. <laughs> <laughs> but that's not how, like, most villains aren't like that. Uh, most bad people aren't like that. They, they aren't sev- sorry, they, they, they aren't integrated. They, aren't, they, they are almost, to an extent, severed. Uh, you read, and it's, it's more qualitative than quantitative, but you read the accounts of some of the people who carried out things like the Holocaust. Uh, you read the accounts from the various juntas in South America, um, the, the Cuban Revolution, some of Che Guevara's um, lieutenants. These are people who could butcher a child with a machete and then go home and you know, eat dinner with their children. And, 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 saw, and there, there was almost a severance there and it's it's unhealthy because like at that point you're you're so you're you're, you're so disassociated is it, it's really hard to talk about like that that's not that, that's not self complexity that's just psychopathy uh in in the colloquial sense not the not not the right. not the clinical psych sense so i i think the closest things we've seen to severance manifest themselves in very evil ways in, in a way so maybe that falls under self-complexity, actually, as I'm thinking about it. I'm, I'm unsure. Um, I was going to get into all this stuff about the way that the show really reinforces its core concept, but I feel like we've been talking for uh, yeah, a good I think bit. We, so. I think we're at a good... Uh, <laughs> we can save it, save it for season <laughs> I mean, two. That'll be coming out. Well, yeah. We could. I will say, this is one thing that I, I was really delighted by, uh, and this maybe speaks to how... I mentally blocked off things in different places, but I didn't realize that the place where they filmed Severance, uh, I've actually been to. In fact, I had been to quite often. I, it's in New Jersey when I was home over the pandemic. Um, it was the old Bell Labs. 
and it got converted into sort of an indoor mall slash like meeting space. And so it was just sort of like a place where you could go and just walk around. It was walk around for free and, and enjoy life and meet with people and maybe buy a coffee. Um, so my parents took to getting their steps in, their 10,000 steps a day. They they would do it there. And sometimes I would join them because it was a good place to catch Pokemon uh, in Pokemon Go. And I had been walking there like at least once a week for almost a year. Right. And I knew that place like very, you know, very well. I watched the show. It takes me until episode seven to realize it's the exact same place. Like they have they barely altered anything. They were actually I found out they were very intent on that using a space that was designed by that particular architect, Iro, Iro Saarinen, um, just because they felt that the look of his architecture just really matched what the show needed to be. And so seven episodes in is when I realize, oh, hey, there's the water tower outside that I recognize. Like, oh, that really wonky looking parking lot. I've parked in it a billion times. And I've walked around... Okay, there isn't a giant mural of Kier on it. It's just a blank wall. But I've walked past that blank wall. I actually got fired from a job while on a Zoom meeting at that blank wall. That sort of leads naturally into the, the Crutching Corner segment of this episode. Do you have Oh, any? no, did someone get fired? I thought you said that you got fired from a job. Like Oh, that was a long time ago. That can't be my current Crutching Corner. That was like nine months ago. <laughs> All right, do you, do you have anything to bring to the Crutching Corner? Things to bring to the kvetching corner. Okay, I mean, this is this is a purely personal thing. It doesn't even have to do with writing. That's fine. But I mentioned earlier about my grandmother and boundaries, and that's been a whole pickle and a half, um, is figuring out. <laughs> like, it's very tough to try to establish roommate boundaries with your relatives because they're your relatives. They don't think they should have boundaries. Um so they love you. They love you. And that's supposed to cover everything, right? And and I should clearly not feel remotely guilty that my grandmother, who has arthritis in her hands, insists on washing all the dishes. She had cataract surgery uh, like two weeks ago. And the day after she gets cataract surgery, right? She's like, we have to pick up some, some Asian food. Um, and she... Like, it's like a co-op thing where you pick it up in, like, a church parking lot. And she was like, oh, I'll go get it. And I'm like, can you even see out of that eye? And she's like, I'll just drive slow. And I was like, no, 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 no. I and she, But she was so insistent about trying to get, get it herself because she didn't want me to have to interrupt my work day to go pick up food. I had to park my car directly behind her car so that she wouldn't be able to get out so that i could get it like that we are at like toddler training levels of difficult here so that's my convention corner <laughs> well i don't have anything personal per se and i mean it's i guess it's my personal career uh so in the last couple of weeks two big headlines regarding psychology have come out and big relatively speaking uh that have just absolutely annoyed the living crap out of me so for the first one um i'm just gonna point blank say Astrology is dumb. If you believe in astrology, that's a dumb thing. Make better choices because astrology is dumb. I, I don't feel like we've just lost our entire Gen Z audience. You've well, just you've made well, fun of astrology. That's because and Sagittarius is disorder. in retrograde or something like that. <laughs> and, and and Leo is 
cancering and Kool-Aid. I don't. <laughs> so according... that word salad was really fun. Keep going. I was again trying not to swear. So a recent study found that 37% of women believe in astrology, only 20% of men. In the U.S.? In the U.S. I question their sampling. But sure, let's just take that for granted right now. This isn't research methods class. Uh, I apologize to the research methods class who's going to hear this similar rant on the day this comes out because I'm starting research methods. I'm just going to be like, I don't care if you believe in astrology. I'm not obliged to respect it. This is science. A psychologist named Barbara Santini has said that the reason that, own, that there's a 17% difference is toxic masculinity. She's like, this is... What? She's like, this, if, if the only reason men don't believe in astrology is because it's a girly thing. And they, they, you know, that's why they... Did, to quote, to most men, astrology is too girly or immature, which explains why they disagree with it or deny its validity. This creates a negative perception of astrology and the women who like it. For some men, the refusal of astrology is linked to toxic masculinity, which does not allow them to enjoy the same things as women. And she said, so many men don't feel welcome in the astrological community because it's girly, so they use masculinity as a shield. They just claim that it's about, you know, logic and science. And I'm and and I you know I study honor culture, which is basically a form, at least the masculine norms, uh, feminine norms. That's their own thing. But I study, culture of honor, masculine culture of honor. Could, when it goes wrong, is basically toxic masculinity. It is a form of toxic masculinity. I will die on the hill that toxic masculinity exists. The article gets worse because then they then they talk to some, but they talk to somebody about you know who said like you know actually there could be scientific proof of astrology because we just haven't funded it. And I'm like, oh, we haven't funded it. Why didn't you find that out? But as far as Barbara Santini goes, Dr. Santini, WTF. Like, I feel like this is just like three giant steps backward for women somehow. Well, I, I, I shared this with a colleague of mine who's like genuinely like one of my best friends and also also a social psychologist. And, I was just, and she just responded with, guess I'm a dude now. <laughs> and she's like she got married a couple of weeks ago like she is very much so you know you know she is a straight cis, cisgendered heterosexual woman but apparently she's a dude because you know she also thinks that that astrology is stupid and i'm like it's also just marketed to women you want the male version of it there's the liver king crap like the, the what now I don't have time to explain Liver King to you. Long, okay. <laughs> Long story short, he's a jacked up, roided out guy who talks about the need to be primal and he sleeps on like netting because that way the electrical service, the cell phone signals don't interfere. I'm going to link to a Danny Gonzalez video where he explains right. how this works uh, okay. in, in the show notes. I'm concerned. I'm, I'm maybe even more concerned about that than the, I am about astrology. The point being that women have their dumb, unscientific crap because it's marketed to them. Men have their dumb, unscientific crap because it's marketed to them. There is n I don't think there's any inherent gender difference, and I don't think anyone's sane. I mean, barring there's that one ex-kickboxer who's revealing himself to be a real piece of work Andrew Tate or whatever his name is like there are certainly people out there who are like awful awful men and they are they and they do hate women and they prey on women and they they try to get their followers to prey on women that's a real thing but astrology really I mean what's interesting is like there's that means that there's a there's a there's a premise that there's something wrong with the fact that men and women aren't equally interested in astrology which is like kind of like saying there's a there's a problem in the fact that men aren't equally interested in Barbie dolls. 
But again, if you ask Barbie doll versus G.I. Joe, I think you'll find those, those things equal. So if you ask astrology versus the alpha, beta, sigma type for males, that's its own form of B. That is just, that's just astrology for men. It's like, that's... I'm a sigma male. No, you're not. You are lonely. <laughs> I'm an alpha. Alphas don't exist. <laughs> the idea of an alpha male is based on really bad science. Anyway, I have yeah. another thing to bring to the to the fetching corner. This is even worse. Uh, but how is it, how could anything be worse? I am going to read you the title and abstract verbatim of a piece that was published in the Journal of Qualitative Research, a journal, because I am a quantitative. I'm a, well, I'm a social psychologist, and I use quantitative methods. So when my okay. students want to use qualitative methods, one of the places I send them is the Journal of Qualitative Methods. This is the title and the abstract. You are hearing this right from the source's mouth. The source's mouth. The source horse. This is straight from the source horse. <laughs> straight from the source horse. Kindly hold your screams until the end of the ride. Okay. Right. I am not alone. We are all alone. Using masturbation as an ethnographic method in research on Shota subculture in Japan. But getting the abstract, I wanted to understand, and I'm going, hold on a second. The I is the, the first person the abstract is writing. This has nothing to do with me. I reject this. Going back to the abstract. I wanted to understand how my research part participants experience sexual pleasure when reading Shota, a Japanese genre of self-published erotic comics that feature young boy characters. I therefore started reading the comics. I can't look at their, your face right now, Faith. I therefore started reading the comics in the same way as my research participants had told me they did it while masturbating. In this research note, I will recount how I set up an experimental method of masturbating to Shota comics and how this participant observation of my own desire not only gave me a more embodied understanding of my topic, of the topic for my research, but also made me think about loneliness and ways to combat it as driving forces of the culture of self-published erotic comics. End quote. I wish I had been severed. I wish that I could sever this from my memory. I wish my my <laughs> my Audi didn't have to cope with the fact that my Innie is probably going to have to talk about this at some point. The journal is currently investigating it, and I'm like, no, 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 no. You retract that crap right now. Academic psychological Twitter was just referring to this as the article for about the last week and a half. <laughs> and my, you, are, you are so lucky that I can laugh silently. And when I'm laughing really hard, I do laugh silently. Otherwise, nobody would have heard half of this. This is, first of all, every rejection I've ever gotten from a journal ever hurts all the more now. Yeah. Second of all, this was peer-reviewed. I am a peer reviewer. I, have, I, peer, I, I review several times a year. I actually kind of like it because I feel that, you know, you know, like it's important as a part of the psychological community, even though we're not getting paid for it. I'm generally nice about it. I don't reject articles unless I think they're genuinely bad. Um, that being said, hold on, I've got to adjust while I'm, because I'm, I'm currently holding a baby. That, I hate that your baby had to hear that, even though she didn't understand well, a single we, word of it. Fortunately, we know that she's 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 not even a year old yet. She won't remember any of this. Thank goodness. Anyway, yeah, uh, my fetch is that peer reviewers didn't reject it because, like, I'm a pretty merciful peer reviewer. I don't think I'd have made it past the title to go. Uh, I want to see your ethics committee. I want to see what you submitted to the IRB. Like, this, is, this isn't like the 60s through the 80s of social psychology where people like Stan Milgram or uh, uh, Philip Zimbardo could just go, I'd like to shock people, or I'd like to throw a bunch of students in a, in a prison simulation and see what happens. 
this is 2022. We have research ethics now. And yet, and yet, and yet. Something about this article strikes me as like, somehow, simultaneously, self-indulgent and racist. Self-indulgent, is that what we're calling it now? And unscientific, if you're like the only person in the study... And it's you? Like, you don't study one other person? You're studying he, yourself? He asked a bunch of... Yes. I think they call it exploring yourself, not studying <laughs> yourself. Oh. oh, no. And the worst thing is, is I fight... Like, psychology is a science. I will die on the hill. I really will. There's a reason it's our research methods classes that are used for most other sciences. Like biologists will routinely, hell, when I was teaching at OU, we had a, like certain engineering departments, depending on the assumptions of their materials, they take basic stats from us. Like we are a real discipline. We are a real science. You say that with more and more indignation every yes, day. Yes, <laughs> because this undermines that. This is like, this is the black sheep effect from when somebody from within your own group betrays the group norms and it's like, punish them. Punish them now. <laughs> Except apparently not this guy because for all I know, he'll turn it into another ethnograph on BDSM. I don't. I'm still speechless. <laughs> That's Mike Fetch. Hmm. Anyway, you want to take us out? And Actually, well, before we go out, uh, do we, want to, do we want to discuss what we're going to talk about next time? So uh, next week, we will be back uh, with probably many, many thoughts on Rings of Power. Originally, we are going to have to wait a bit longer, but they moved it up. Yeah. Up so. from the 7th to the 2nd, and then from the 2nd to the 1st, because the 2nd is the anniversary of Tolkien's death. And that feels ominous. Yeah, and it'll, it'll be interesting, because they're releasing it week to week, but so like there's a part of me that wants to kind of hold off until the other thing but they're also at least according to what they're saying and the first premiere is going to be like three and a half hours long or something so three and a half hours for the first yep well yep yep i don't next episode there what? may not be a kvetching corner it may just be an entire kvetch it may be or you know what i'm i'm trying to remain neutral until we get there i mean i um, i am as well i think it's important to i just Mm. Well, mm. well, we'll talk about that when we we'll get, get there. We'll get there when we get there. But um, thank you all for listening. And uh, insert clever outro here. Insert clever outro. This time with a baby saying goodbye. Bye, guys. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>